This is Real History, and this is Melissa, and today is Thursday, the 31st of August, 2023, and I am joined by Darren in South Africa and also Joanne Burmester, who works with Petrosito that we talked to a couple of months back. So, hello, Joanne. Hi, Melissa. How are you? How are you? Slightly frustrated because once again we have a, a little bit of sound difficulty, but we're going to muddle through this. Yep. Darren, how are you doing? Uh, All well, thanks, Melissa. I'll try not to cough you two out of the podcast. Okay. Oh, I, Joanne, I want to know. Well, first of all, Darren, I'm not even sure that I know what part of South Africa you are in. Uh, I'm in Port Elizabeth, uh, the Eastern Cape. The Eastern Cape, okay. And Joanne, where are you located? I'm in Pietermaritzburg. That's in Natal. Okay, so Which you're is now KwaZulu Natal. <laughs> yeah, so you're a bit a fair distance from one another. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a big country. Yep. It is. Um, it's about a day's drive. Hey, uh-huh. Darren. It, it, it is about a day. Yeah. Wow. Uh, if, I, if I if I want to drive up to Sedwana Bay to dive, um, I normally drive through, spend an evening with relatives in Durban, and then carry on the drive. So it's yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good full day drive. Ah. Oh. Yeah. I was asking you, Joanne, before we started to record, how you became aware of Petrus and what he was doing. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to join us today. He's doing some recording on a project related to this. And so he's in the studio and so can't be here with us. But you met him, you said, a couple of years ago. And I was wondering uh, how you met him, how he came to your attention. Um, well, I think I've always, I've always followed the, uh, farm murders that are happening in this country. Um, and Petrus came up quite often. Uh, he did a lot of walks, um, carrying that cross. So I think he stood out to a lot of people. And, you know, at the time I never reached out to him or anything. Um, until I joined up with another group that were wanting to get the elections moved to 2023 and get the ANC out. And, you know, I thought to myself, okay, well, let me contact Petrus and see if he would be willing to join this protest that we were planning. And, yep, he was... And we have been working together ever since. That's great. That's great. Um, so what is it, uh, what was it about Petrus and the way that he was approaching this that made him seem different or uh, more, just what made you click with him? and want to work so closely with him? So for me, I would say the fact that he's a black man doing this for 
farmers that are predominantly white, that stood out. And I think that's what stands out to everybody. And people don't know quite what to make of it. Because it's just, it's just a, you know, you don't, you don't see that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, that is what got my attention. With the, I followed quite a few activists and I actually, I never approached any of the, the others that dealt with farm murders. Um, it was, it was only him. Um, so I was like, yeah, a silent watcher and thinking, you know, I need to do something. You know, this, it, it cannot, it cannot go on. And yeah, I think, yeah, we, we, we spoke when we were arranging for him to come to the protest and we kind of hit it off and then I started helping him with like admin things, uh, doing his emails, looking after his website, mm-hmm. um, pretty much all in. <laughs> and yeah, it's just kind of gone like that. So now, yeah. you said that you're a teacher. Yes, I teach English online. So um, I teach Chinese students. Ah. So are they far yeah. flung around the globe or that that just reach out to study English with you? No, I work for a company. Ah, okay. That they've basically got students and the students if they're happy with you, they pick you. And yeah. So my my time's pretty flexible most of the time. Um I can change it, you know, if I need to. Yeah. Uh but sometimes it is very hectic as well. <laughs> Especially at the moment because they are on the vacation. And unlike most children on vacation, they study harder than when they are at school. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, a different ethic. <laughs> Completely. I mean, I have three-year-olds that can have a conversation in English and, you know, are learning to read. Wow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they are very, very driven and, yeah, they, they, they don't, I've, you know, in a way, I feel sorry for the children because they don't get that, you know, childhood. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the hard work, I think, pays off for them in the end. Because mm-hmm. learning a new language is easiest when you're young. Yes, that's true. So, yeah. Well, did you... The, I mean, the farm murders are horrific, and it is worth paying attention. And I suppose if you're living, you know, in a country, you want to be aware of all of the different issues that you're faced with. But did you have a personal encounter or a personal connection to any farm attack or farm murder? Um, yeah, well, there, there was a family that um, were murdered 
about two years ago, that uh, they, the husband worked with my dad and the wife I worked with. Mm. And they, they retired and moved away to a farm and, you know, everything was going great. And they were brutally killed in their home over a Christmas bonus. And mm. they were retirement age, obviously, and she had her grandfather, well, her father, I should say, sorry, her father with her. So they attacked Dani in the workshop and killed him and went to the house, found her and killed her, then went and looked for the old man and killed him as well. Mm. I think living in this country, you know, it's very hard not to be affected by the violence. You know, I've I've seen people die on more than one occasion. Um, you know, uh, especially moving to this side of of the country. Um, I think we are sitting. Plymouthburg is sitting at number two as one of the most dangerous cities in the whole of Peter. Oh, sorry, in the whole of Africa. And I'm actually from the Eastern Cape originally. I'm from East London, same as, as Beatrice, <laughs> small world. Um, and same we moved you. here okay. when, yeah. <laughs> and, um, the first night that we, that we were here, I mean, I was still in junior school and there was a murder outside our house and I was outside with my parents you know, trying to help this guy, but he'd been stabbed so many times mm. that you just couldn't, you couldn't plug the holes fast enough. And the ambulance, they always do, they take forever. And he died. Mm. So, yeah, violence is just something that you're always aware of. You're not supposed to ask a woman her age. I don't want to do that, but I think that, that, uh. I'm 46. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you don't have to ask. <laughs> so you were a teenager at the end of apartheid? Yes, yes. Um, I, I matriculated from high school in 94. So, yeah, <laughs> strange timing. Mm -hmm. um, but, yes, um, it's growing up in, in apartheid, um, I think a lot of South Africans can say this, that were growing up in that time. We weren't aware of, you know, what was happening. I was basically raised by our domestic worker. She looked after me. You know, her child used to come on weekends and stuff, and we used to play together. And 
to me, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know until I got to high school age, I think, that you realize that there is this division, but then you're still not sure to, you know, the exact, how, you know, how bad it was. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us have grown up, you know, not, not being racist. I think that a lot of people become racist because of the violence that we are living in. You know, when someone close to you is taken, you know, it's, it's hard not to feel anger. And a lot, a lot of these attacks are by people that they know, mm-hmm. people that they trust. Mm-hmm. So, it gives you serious, like, trust issues as well. <laughs> I mean, like I was telling you, I was raised by our domestic worker who moved with us from East London to Peter Maritzburg. And during that time, uh, 90s, say, 90, say, 90 to 94, was not a good time to be at Boza in a Zulu area. To be a what? A, um, it's a Goza. So that, that is what she, she was. She was Goza speaking, same as Pietrus. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, to come to a different area where it's different people and they speak a different language. And especially at that time, you know, a lot of people were being Attacked, killed, you know, because you don't support the right political party. So she, she got very paranoid. She never really went anywhere. The, I must say, I think one of the last nights that she was with us, she actually, she, I think she'd lost her mind completely. You know, she was doing the dishes and I was in a you know, teenage temper, you know, and she actually pulled a bread knife on me. Mm. And my parents were out. The neighbors heard the screaming, and they came over and fetched me and my two younger sisters until my parents got home. Yeah, we went to the police and what, what, you know. Um, and all she wanted was to go back to East London. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to be here, but the police said to us, you know, look at her eyes. They were like saucers, you know, like she's, she's not, she's not sane. Mm -hmm. So we, we paid for her to, you know, catch a bus and go back to East London. But, you know, being raised by her and then her turning around and wanting to kill me was, you know, a bit daunting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, so, yeah. So the the pressures. So it was she who was afraid of other black people because she might not have been associated with the right political movement. Or th- is that what? Is yeah. that what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Plus, 
the ANC and the Encarta at that time, Darren can tell you as well, there was a lot of violence, you know, towards the elections after, well, even before Mandela was released. And, you know, you'd be walking along as a black person and get stopped by another black person and they'll ask you, what, what party are you? Now, you don't know what to say because you don't know what party they are. And if you say the wrong party, they will kill you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Zulus are known for their, their <laughs> bloodlust. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I saw the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Shaka Zulu. Yeah. <laughs> Scary, terrifying, yeah. actually. I mean, I know it's a movie, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's he was yeah. <laughs> and to think his brother killed him too because he was too way gone. But mm-hmm. then, you know, you look at history. Um, then Dingon killed the fur trackers. He made a you know a deal with them and invited them to dinner and slaughtered them. Mm. So. Then you can imagine if he killed his own brother because his brother was bad, but that was what he was capable of, then, yeah, (laughs) how bad was Shaka? (laughs) Well, you sent me a little piece that you wrote about Nelson Mandela, his background, and the group that he was in was revolutionary, the, the terrorist cell of the ANC. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He he formed the Kuntusizwe. Um, he broke off basically from the ANC and formed Kuntusizwe. And this was um, just to set this for the uh, historically illiterate, including myself. This was the early sixties, like nineteen sixty or late fifties. What was the time period here? It was 1961 okay. when um, it was officially set up, and he was the one who set it up. You know, you, you try and, and you know track his his movements. You know, like right from right from birth. Like I, I put in the article, you know, he did. He came from almost like royalty. He studied. You know, he's he was qualified as a lawyer. He had Jewish friends, white friends, and for him to just go completely the other direction where he felt that, you know, he needed to break away even from the ANC as such because they, they weren't willing to be violent enough. To take, uh, <clears throat> sorry, to take the country, and so he he went and formed Nkuntusizwe and went for training. He actually left South Africa. I'm not sure where he went for training in guerrilla warfare. Okay, and this, this um, Darren, we might want to pipe. You might want to pipe in here. 
so that we can fill in this part of the story. But what we're talking about here is it's a very different image of Nelson Mandela, and we'll also be talking about his wife, Winnie. Uh, then the mainstream press has given because what the way that this has been characterized and now you have a whole generation plus that has grown up with the new hit view of history is that he is he was a hero who unified all of the black people and fought apartheid and ha- was instrumental in overturning that and by being basically the first high-profile member of the ANC, although he went into the terrorist part of that, he then um, became the president of the country. And this was huge. And and I, I think the way that Darren characterized apartheid is it was a horrible system that nobody wanted I'm kind of going all over the map here, but I want to ask you a question, Darren. Do you think that taking away the terrorist wing of the ANC, was their movement in a maybe slower, steady way amongst the white population of South Africa to change the system gradually? Um, I'm just a few years older than Joanne, and you know, the first time I spoke to you about South Africa, I I mentioned, you know, all of us have a slightly different take. So my experience, I think you summed up things quite well when you said the way that Nelson Mandela has been characterised for the international audience, he's been given the um, the character of the father of the Rainbow Nation that he was unjustly imprisoned, no fault of his own. He was almost a martyr. He was in prison for 27 years, and he came out of prison with a big, warm, grandfatherly smile. He was willing to reconcile with the evil <coughs> apartheid system and to let bygones be bygones and to create a country for everyone where everyone is included, etc., etc., and so he's been given this, as you said again, a, a characterization of somebody who is the, the father, the father figure who has come out to settle everything down. But the part about him being almost, you know, a freedom fighter in one man's eyes and a, an utter ruthless terrorist in, in the eyes of others seems to have been left out because... In the Wikipedia article that I've read on Nelson Mandela, it's it's true. They did try to fight the system from a political point of view, but their political stance was never recognized. It was never taken seriously. So a lot of people, and you don't have to be a communist or a member of a communist party or a far left-leaning liberal organization to realize that if you put yourself into the shoes of, of a Nelson Mandela and your people have been systematically treated as third-rate human beings in the land where they're born, um, you'd have to ask yourself, well, would I be, would I be the, the, the Gandhi of the day, you know? After I've exhausted all political angles and talking and trying to reach uh, people, 
would I also not resort to violence? And this might sound a little bit controversial, but I think it's quite fair. I think I probably would have started fighting back physically. I don't think there's anything wrong with it if other means have been exhausted. But the way that you go about doing it matters uh, a lot. The problem is, is that, you know, in the Inkontwe we see where an organization, you have cadres, people that were trained by the uh, Soviet um, machine. Um, they often had, um, in we seas where, um, what do they call them, uh, stations or um, headquarters were off just outside the country. Mm-hmm. And um, they were trained militarily by the Soviets. And, you know, they, they fought the apartheid system in what you could only call a dirty, dirty warfare. So there were bombs going off all over the place. A lot of civilians and children did get killed. And Nelson Mandela is involved. He was involved. It can't be denied. So he certainly was no African Gandhi. That's that the part of his characterization that is kept quiet is the part where he has been involved as a soldier or as a terrorist, if you want to call him that, or as a freedom fighter. But he wasn't opposed to violence. He was involved with violence. He used violence. He agreed with it. And that violence was often targeted, they claim, by mistake. But a a lot of innocent people who had nothing to do with enforcing the apartheid system were hurt or killed. And it is important in the general scheme of things that people do know this about Nelson, Nelson Mandela. And, you know, as Joanne was saying, um, Joanne was mentioning Winnie Mandela. It's also important to factor how Winnie Mandela uh, fits into the picture as well. The thing, too, that I want, you know, the little bit that I've read of both what you've written and other articles surrounding it is that the violence that Nelson and Winnie Mandela used was not strictly black on white or a freedom fighter slash terrorist against white apartheid oppressors violence. This was also intimidation and violence, black on black, who of, of people who yep. were not cooperating with what they with their political agenda. Can I step in again? Yes. Uh, Joanne? Yeah, um, you can. All right. Uh, I just wanted to, um, I, I, you know, I've been trying to do a little, a little bit of catch-up on my side as well because it's not a topic that I'm strongly familiar with. But, you know, you know, in a freedom-fighting mo- movement, you're going to have all different types of personalities involved. Um, so I've been looking back at the different characters involved with the ANC and in Kornwewe Siswe. I've been reading into uh, the Ravonia trial, and you look into the the characters, you can start seeing a picture forming. You have people that were involved who were intellectuals. You have people that come from all walks of life, and invariably you're going to get those who are more sober-minded, who are more reconciliatory, who aren't willing to uh, go too crazy, and then you're going to get the characters that are, they've got the bloodlust, they are full of vengeful hate, and they are willing to go the extra mile and blow up civilians. And you look at a character like Winnie Mandela, 
and it's written all over her face. And right up until her death, she was fermenting hate. She was behind the likes of Julius Malema when he was with the ANC Youth League, always stirring the pot, always looking for the more radical angle. You know, Nelson Mandela did divorce her, and she uh, contested the divorce and is always trying to angle in on his on his wealth or his uh, fame. But she was just a person of bad character. If you just look at, his, at her history, she was involved with the murder of a young activist who she suspected of divulging confidential information to the state. So she was willing to be really, really dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to look at the ANC and in Kumbu we see where I have to look at the apartheid system and I have to juggle things in my mind. I can't in I can't justify apartheid to myself. It is wrong. And if I was a young black person born in this land and I was a third rate citizen um, and it was systemic it, in the law, I would have an axe to grind. I certainly would. Mm-hmm. So I think that the moral high ground was against the apartheid system is, is the correct one to have. But unfortunately, in any good cause or political movement, you're going to have the big geopolitical actors, you know, so you have the likes of the uh, Kissingers and the Russians and everyone steering the, the background uh, support and the weaponry and the training and all that kind of thing, which goes on. And then within the, the, the movement, you're going to have various types of actors. So I think Nelson Mandela was chosen at the end of the day for presidency because he was viewed as being the more agreeable type of character that everyone could accept. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were some really nasty, really uh, sick um, members of the Communist Party who were, in, who I don't know all the names off the off, off the off the bat, but there were some certainly some filthy, ruthless, um, disgusting people that played a role in the freedom movement. So, yeah, there's you, you have to look at you have to look at both sides that way. So. With regards to the the person that that she killed, I'm guessing you're referring to Stompy. That's the one. Yeah. He was 14 years old. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, his accomplices. Uh, there, there were four boys apparently kidnapped. Uh, they were beaten to a pulp. He was uh, beaten to death, and his throat was cut. Um, yep. And he was later proven to be innocent. Um, but she went on to be charged for just think of a just think of a crime, and she's had her finger in the pie. Uh, a terrible woman, but overall, you know, protected by the greater ANC family. Mm-hmm. All she got was a six years jail sentence, which was reduced to a fine and a two year mm-hmm. suspended sentence. Wow. For ruthlessly, she I, I think she must have been one of the most evil women. She's and got she's got, uh, she's got a e- egotistical narcissist written on her on her face. Yeah. She, yes, she was definitely a piece of work. But um, I don't know if you saw what she 
um, who she was when she met Mandela. She was a social worker, and you think a social worker who goes and does something like that to children, mm-hmm. it's, I just, you know, it's some of these things that have happened, you just cannot, you cannot, no matter how much you try, wrap your head around how people could do this. How could you do this and go to sleep and function and be, you know, it's... If I look back, I I was just thinking to myself now, I think of the American, I would actually call her uh, um, the the South African version of Hillary. Oh, that, yes, that has occurred (laughs) to me. (laughs) Because because there's the little saying in America, um, those people there and there have been Clintoned. Is that right? Or Hillary? Uh, well, um, or Arkansided. That's it, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people have had a similar experience at the hand of Winnie Mandela. You know, she was the one that was famous uh, worldwide um, for saying, you know, with, with the matches and the petrol and the tires, we will fight uh, and win or whatever. And, you know, that takes yeah. you onto, onto necklacing, which is, I don't know if it's only a South African... Uh, thing I've actually I think I've seen people being necklaced in, in Haiti or Haiti as well, but I, maybe maybe she invented it or maybe it had its first. As hmm. as far as I'm aware, it did come from South Africa from the 19 yeah so around around her time, and hmm. you know when when. Winnie and Mandela were discussing what to do with people who they suspected as being informants. Nelson's choice was to cut off people's noses. Hers was the tire, the petrol, and the matches. Okay, so that the tire, the petrol, and the matches is necklacing. Joanne, can you describe that? Okay, so... I went um, <laughs> for my work experience two weeks. I decided I wanted to go to the police. It was It's something that they used to do at our school. You got an opportunity to go and see what it was like in the career that you thought you wanted. I got to see a woman being necklaced, and her husband was a policeman. She was suspected of being an informant. And they put petrol in the tire. They basically put it over your head and pin your arms. So basically, you know, it's holding your arms to your body. So you can't do anything. You are bound with this big tire holding you that's filled with petrol. Then they pour petrol on you and light the match. And it's not even a solemn occasion. It's like a a cause for celebration because there's people shouting, chanting. This woman was running around on fire 
begging for help. And okay. they were smashing her with rocks, bricks. Yes, Darren. Joanne, yes, um, I've seen it. Uh, not up front. I haven't seen it personally. I have a, a cousin, about two years older than me, who began his military service. But, you know, you could... You could pick, if you were lucky, you could pick to be a policeman or in the army or navy or whatever it was. He was a policeman at that political time in Durban. Oh. And he saw, he actually saw more than one necklacing, but I, I don't know how many he saw in total. And he says it's the most sickening sight you can imagine because the person takes a hell of a long time to die. Um, they do. And and they they actually get so hot that the eyeballs in their head actually pop pop out. Yeah. And yeah. They, they they they're still alive. Um and then it's hard to it's hard to tell when they've died because uh, their their nervous system might start contracting. That you know, so you see someone that's burning to a crisp and their body's still moving. Um anyway, um the other part that really disturbed me just as Joanne was saying, it's there's something missing for me psychologically with a lot of people that I share this country with because I, too, I've got my limits and I can understand hatred. I can understand wanting to punish maybe a, a, a political dissident or something. But when you set someone on fire in that cruel manner and everyone, there's children involved, they're all there. Yep. All, all ages, men, women, and a lot of the time it's the women. I'm quite surprised. It's the women who are singing and smiling and ululating and it's having this, this experience, like celebrating it at the expense of this victim who you think that even if you hate them, you could sort of have a more of a solemn to see people celebrating like that of all ages, it, it's it, there's another level here that disturbs me personally. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, I just wanted to add that because Joanne, there's a level of hatred. Yeah. Go ahead, Darren. It's a love. It, I, I, it's a level of hatred that is hard to comprehend. And also, when it's so, when the whole community is enjoying it, that's what bothers me. You know, I, I, I know they used to burn witches in Salem and that kind of thing, but I don't know if the people that were committing the crime were jumping up and down and enjoying it, you know. There, the is, there is something that, um, you know, that we only know because they tell us that this happened in history. But we know that, that's, that's that hangings, know. you know, hangings were public and um, <laughs> the beheadings were public. The, and people were not required to go. I mean, this is at least this is what they tell us in the history books. They had public oh, executions and people were not required to go. So that tells me that there is something in human nature that wants to be there. And it's, I'm and not sure that it German was that, ever uh, solemn. What's that German phrase, schadenfreude? I, yes, schadenfreude, delight in other people's suffering. I actually was. Uh, I actually watched a little bit of um, the life of Brian last night, ah. Monty Python, where they were stoning um, the guy who was who said the word Jehovah, you know. And um, I'm just reminded of that now. There's something about a, a, another person 
uh, being scapegoated that is appealing somehow mm-hmm. to to other people. Yeah. And Joanne, you also said that this was something that was um, once the once this type of execution was set into motion, that there was nothing that you could do as a bystander to help them. That it happened so. No, yeah. Even the army, they weren't even allowed to shoot them. I mean, the people that were burning to put them out of their misery. Why? They weren't. A, so the army had to stand by and watch these people burn to death. They weren't Joanne, allowed to, yeah. I didn't know that, and that's that. That's actually sent a little shiver through me when I heard you say that. Uh, I was thinking of some of the pictures I've seen in print um, where you'll see a policeman putting out a, a, a victim with a, a fire extinguisher. But that's, I mean, the person's already far gone. Yeah. So there you there you go. The police or the army couldn't interfere and put someone out of their misery because it would be, it probably create even more violence. Yeah. Um, they they had to just basically stand by and watch, smell it, and uh, I'd I'd and it's 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 like a sport. Mm-hmm. The way that that they do it, you know, it's not just a one-on-one. It's a group, you know, mm-hmm. and they they feed off of each other. Um, yeah, the same thing. Same thing uh, in that horrific time I spent at the police which made me decide I don't want to be in the police, um, was someone getting slashed to death with a panga. They run, and it doesn't even look like um, the panga's hitting them, even though you can see it, because they are running until the final stroke, and then they just drop. What is a now? <clears throat> what is a panga? Yeah, a machete. Ah, ah. So it's a, a long blade that you can use to chop like long grass. Right. Okay. Yeah. See, yeah, um, so Alan talked of, about one of the favorite tools. Alan talked about how in Rwanda, um, you had so many machetes going that it sounded like crickets. I mean, it had a sound, this constant, you know, that of the the machetes in the air of the absolute violence and bloodlust. Yep. Rwanda was absolutely horrific. And you look at Rwanda, Congo, you know, all these other countries Zimbabwe, and, you know, you sit here and you think, my gosh, I am stuck in this country. There's nowhere to run to. And it could be your turn tonight. You know, no one thinks it's going to be their turn until it is their turn. Mm -hmm. And... 
the cruelty, the torture, the, it's like they, they're trying to dehumanize you to like, I don't know, it's, like I said, you can sit and try and wrap your head around what kind of thinking that is, and I can't do it. Okay, I, the, I, I want to say something here, and that, because we've been talking about horrific violence and a kind of a you 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 said something Darren in an email not too long ago about the kind of bestial place that so much of humanity is in that there's something they're not really recognizable as human any longer but I th- to me, I think why it is important to talk about this. What we're talking about is really perception, and it is the discomfort that one has when they live in a place in which the perceptions of reality are so spun and controlled, tightly controlled. So the rest of the world has an image of South Africa as having a very bad racism problem, whites against blacks. The blacks have overcome. Uh, the ANC is good. Nelson, Man- Nelson Mandela was good. He was righteous. And so you have this mm. sense, um, I watching this, think, what would it be like to be white and living in this country? Because you know, only you know the inside of you. Only you know if you are a racist or not a racist. But you may fall into that category uh, simply because your skin is white. And you look at this and you know that the way this is being conveyed to the rest of the world is not true. And I think that the, I, I wanted to hear you, Joanne, get into a little bit more about Julius Malima because he was mentored by Winnie Mandela. And it is Julius Malima now who is the head of the EFF. Did I get the party right? EFF, yeah, Economic Freedom Fighters. And it is he who is singing kill the boar, kill the farmer, kill the white man in, in, in stadiums filled with many thousands of black people. And then saying and it's not a call and saying, oh, it's just a historical song. It's not a call. A, a, as he put it, it's not a call yet for their deaths. Julius Malema says so many things that... Yet, no, no, not yet. It's already happening. As soon as he sings that song and word gets around, people start dropping. And yes, he was close with Winnie Mandela, but look at him and listen to his speeches. He often refers to Nelson Mandela, that Nelson Mandela knew that you had to pick up arms, that you had to kill. He often 
praises Nelson Mandela and that Nelson Mandela was right. So, yes, Winnie had some influence, but this could be like a young Nelson. Mm -hmm. We just, you know, there wasn't social media back then, you know, um, like there is now where it spreads like wildfire. And, you know, the fact that he keeps on referring back to Nelson Mandela, it's, it's, you know, it, it makes you really think, you know, he was not a good man. And, you know, the rest of the world, they don't. They don't know. I get told every day because what my students know of South Africa was the wonderful president we had that won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can't stop praising him. And you're like, okay, um, you just keep quiet. Because you don't want to tell them, well, actually, you know what he did? Because they're children, you know, but this is what people are learning. It's been handed down, handed down until he's some kind of a, a god. When, yes, apartheid was wrong. What was happening, you know, especially behind the wreck, behind the scenes. You know, things that most people didn't know about. It was wrong. But I'm sorry. I don't, I don't believe that he came out with good intentions. He was approached by de Klerk in 85. So 1985. And he asked Nelson Mandela to renounce violence, and he could go. Nelson refused. Mm -hmm. That was in 1985. Mm -hmm. 1987, from jail, he was arranging more murders. He arranged for, I think it was 14 people to get killed in um, a car bombing in 1987. 1988, he wasn't at Robben Island. He was staying, they said it was a warden's house. I'll send you the picture. It's got a swimming pool and everything. Mm -hmm. He was having meetings with de Klerk. There's also other persons from Commonwealth that came and met with him. No name, you know, no further information was given. I think, you know, most of the others took, took the, you know, when they were approached with the same deal, renounce violence, you can go. They did it. He wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So if he was doing all of that, still arranging all these you know, assassinations and things. In 1987 is the last one that I know of. How all of a sudden can he come out with good intentions? Right. And but it is like interesting. In 
Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say it is interesting what you're describing, that he has an actually luxurious, rather luxurious prison sentence, um, lots of freedom and comforts, and he is also, most importantly, meeting with heads of state, not only the head of state of South Africa, but of, from other countries. So he's being groomed while in a rather comfortable prison experience for what comes next. Yes, exactly. And, you know, um, I mentioned it in the article. Ramaphosa was his, his person that he chose to do the negotiations for him. And, I mean, Ramaphosa, I'd, I know it, I, you know, I, I think... A lot of people do, although it's very hard to find the actual article where Ramaphosa refers to the white people as frogs that you put in a pot of water and you slowly turn up the heat. so that the, You have to do it slowly so that they don't all jump out. You do it slowly, and then they'll all just sit there and cook to death. That is what Cyril Ramaphosa's intentions were. And if you look at what's happening, it looks like he's getting his wish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Darren. Is Darren still there? Um, hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> Sorry. My Skype decided to um, go slow there for a second. Oh, okay. Um, my take on this whole thing is I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate. I do agree with Joanne, and I try and I'm trying to take in the totality of it because I don't want to be I don't want to take sides because in my personal life and at work as a white guy who is almost 50 years old. In my personal experience with people of all races in this country, how you treat other people is how you tend to be treated. Mm -hmm. And I've had nothing, absolutely nothing but goodwill my entire life. I've experienced a minimal of racism from just about all quarters. And I do know that I've met white people who are just, you know, they are real proper racists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you'll you, you'll yeah. encounter race you'll encounter racism everywhere. And I know that during apartheid and um, I've met some of these people who are in their seventies, they will tell you how they were involved in uh, the paramilitary because the army wasn't so much involved with upholding apartheid, it was the police. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were different divisions within the police. Uh, you, you know, you had the, the hit squads, you had the guys who you know, who pulled off their dog tags and went and did things that would make your, your, what's you, what's you, what's the word? <laughs> you would your, um, your skin crawl. Make your skin crawl. They did the dirty deeds for the apartheid system. So, you know, I think that the use of violence by the black people, I think it actually was warranted. I actually do think it's true. I think it. I think it had to happen. But it, it, it happened in a way which was quite regretful. And there are a few bad actors who do not regret what they've done. 
So I think that within the freedom movement, or you know, that you, you, you're going to have these different actors, and even within the apartheid system, you had those who were the hardened type, you know, who would enforce the um, apartheid system with psychopathic glee. You know, you heard those stories, mm-hmm. and you had others that were they supported apartheid, but they were how could you say it ethical? They had a bit of empathy for their for their um, for their lessers. You know, you always get that bigger picture. You always have those people. So, as a close to fifty year old white male in this country, I just wanted to say, if you had to listen to us speaking, I don't want to leave people with the impression that I think uh, black people are all violent. Um, I don't want to create um, this impression that. It's um, a white versus black thing because I just wanted to give a little anecdote regarding the purchasing of of guns. My father was relating to me that he um, was going for a a hunting license and he was doing his competency course. And, um, you know, you have to write an exam. And he noticed that for every one white person applying and writing the exam for their competency certificate, there were nine black people uh, all um, applying. And, you know, you, you start, you know, my father said you would get to chatting with these people. And he said, look, why are you, what's your, um, what is your reason, you know, for getting a firearm license? And they said, look, the police just can't cope. We um, are being inundated with violent crime. House robberies, burglaries, you name it. There are black people that are every much the victim of extreme violence and of all, all kinds of crime, as are as are the any other population group within this country. So South Africa has a moral problem, an ethical problem. Things have spiraled out of control under the ANC. When I spoke about the farm murders with you, I did want to make the differentiation about farm murders because there is a difference there is a difference there but I don't want to take away from the fact that it's a it's a it's a it's a moral problem there are good people who are struggling to survive and earn a living and they are constantly being hit by just about every kind of crime there is and the police can't cope uh, you have political pot stirrers that I think that the ANC actually uses the likes of the EFF and Malema as a, you can call it as a sort of the more aggressive wing of the ANC to keep the pot stirred, just to keep yeah. it boiling, you know. And you can see it. As soon as the, 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 these things settle down, the white people, the black people, the Indian people, the colored people, and every other color and creed get along quite well, sort of, you know, as much as you can expect in the world. And they don't like that. Uh, they really mm-hmm. do not like that because when people start talking and getting together, they realize that their common enemy really is the ANC government. So you have exactly. to stir the pot. You have to stir that pot. And we see it. It's, it's so obvious. And it saddens me when I see people falling for the stirring and they pick a side and People who have had bad racial experiences come out with their racial comments. And I, I, I've met these people, you know, you'll hear people making racial comments, but 
you know, it's more of a venting of frustration rather than a true... They're not really racists in action in their lives. They're actually reasonably okay. But when you have racial tension and the politicians are stirring the pot, it does come out, frustrations. But my personal experience in life in this country is that I've been treated well by everyone. I have had one or two little incidences, but very minor. Otherwise, uh, it's it's a case of uh, South Africa has been thoroughly divided and conquered for quite a while. So we'll have to see what happens now. Well, there's a, a co- yeah. Joanne, there's a couple of uh, things that I wanted to make sure that we talked about, but what were you going to say? I was gonna, I was gonna agree with what Darren said, and I think that also stems back to what I was saying earlier. You know, people aren't racist, but you know, you have somebody of another color taking away someone you love, mm-hmm. you know, in in that kind of fashion. You know, it it does bring out the the racial thing. And like Darren says, you are, you know, you venting, you, you're, you're not a racist, but this is what you, you have been through. And it's, it's really hard with, with the pot being stirred continuously because that is what the government is relying on and Julius is 100% with Cyril doing the dirty work. That's, that's my feeling. Um, and the more the people of this country are fighting each other, the more they are stealing at the top. I, there, there's a, um there's a couple of things here uh, b- before I, I, we wrap it up, and I, and I wanted to let, get back to talking about Petrus and what he's doing. But again, the uncomfortable dialogue around racism, especially when you are white. Uh, I just stumbled on this old article from several years ago. I was looking for something and looking for something and looking for something, and last night... A piece of trivia popped up beside something that I was looking for, which was that the actor, Liam Neeson, had been preparing for a role in which he needed to conjure up a lot of anger. And he was describing that a friend of his had been raped by a black man many years ago. And at the time that it happened, he said he he walked down the street with so much rage he just wanted to kill someone because of what had happened to his friend and he said he just went back into that place to prepare for a role well what happened to him was that the world turned on this actor and called him a racist simply for going into a place. He said, I'm, I'm not a racist. I'm just telling you about a rage that I had many years ago towards someone who happened to be black. So this is the, this is the dilemma that we are in is we may not have these feelings at all, but you can't even talk about what is going on or what you've experienced in your life or that will be pointed at you. 
Melissa, you, yeah. you're very, you're very right there. Um, the color thing, it's <clears throat> so easy to stir the pot and to keep it going mm-hmm. because what you've just described can take place between a Corsa and a Zulu who are both black, a German and a Frenchman. Yes. Um, exactly the same uh, feelings can be stirred up between a Catholic and a Protestant. Yes. But the, the, the color difference between a black man and a white man has got a sticking point in today's political correctness where it's almost viewed as a black man cannot be racist no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the white guy is continuously apologizing for his very existence now, or at least a lot of people feel that they have to do that. Um, yes, it, it's definitely a global, I, I think, but that's got bigger, bigger geopolitical. It, it does. Um, and I, I well, I, yeah. I know, I know what the bigger geopolitical causation is here. This is, yeah. glo- this is global communism. This was written about more than a hundred years ago, specifically about yes. the U.S., but other parts of the West, and I think we can now apply this to South Africa, where we have a black-white, where there's race there, because they knew that things were so comfortable in America for the average worker that they would never yeah. be able to have a class struggle. It would always have to be a race struggle. And mm. that's what we, or that's what we're living through in the United States. This is what Black Lives Matter is about. This is what's going on there. It's, we do have a common enemy. It is not each other, regardless of our creed or our skin color. This is a Marxist technique that is being used yes. against us. You can see how they are yeah. filtering in the, the different racial groups and trying to mix it up in America, uh, sorry, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Because it's working so well in South Africa, it's working so well mm-hmm. in the United States that you just have to introduce it to a, a lily white Europe and you can use the same tactics to achieve what they really are pulling off very, very quickly. Which is international communism. That's it, yeah. Can I elaborate something on that point, Melissa? Yes, yes. Uh, because it is international commun- communism, but it's also international capitalism at the same time. I remember what you said when Alan would describe it as a capitalist, communist, fascist. Capi commie fasci. <laughs> That's yes, what he would because, say. <laughs> because what's happening is that they want to install a global public-private partnership system of, mm-hmm. of, of running things. So it is international communism and it is international Capitalism merging as one, but it's capitalism for the capital for those who have capital over those who they will control. Those who they control will 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 have international communism. <laughs> so the plebs will have a, a communism or a communitarianism system dominating over them with a with 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 a, a monopolistic capital. So you can sort of say some people argue about. Is it capitalism or communism? It's actually a blend of, of the two being yes. used. Yes, that's right. It just depends where you stand. That's right. Yeah. We did not talk as much about the farm murders as I hoped, but there are a couple of things that I'd like us to get into before we wrap this up. The, the first thing is about Petros, who is not here with us in this conversation. Uh, last night, when we were attempting to record something, he had a very limited window. It didn't work out because what he was leaving to do, he was having a prayer 
conference with a group of pastors. And so the, the commitment, Petros describes what he is doing as a mission, and he said he felt a calling from God to do this mission. He is a committed Christian who doesn't view this as a us versus them or a black versus white. This is a moral problem, and he is bringing a Christian perspective. Yes, he's a black man, but I think what identifies him the most in his commitment is that he is a Christian. I call it also, I call it, uh, he's a man of principle. Yes, he is. Um, yeah. I, think, I, I think that Pietrus would stand up for, for the farmer if they were all Chinese or if they were all Nigerian. Yes. I think that I think that's what principle means. And I applaud Pietrus and anyone who is like him because you can overcome any kind of prejudice and see the world through the correct lens. It's how we behave, you know. Yes. So... While we're talking about him, Joanne, uh, about 10 months ago, 9 or 10 months ago, you set up Back a Buddy, which is like a crowdfunding tool yeah. for Petrus. And when I looked at that a couple of months ago, you had barely made a third. Maybe it was 25% of the goal, which was quite modest. And I have mentioned this several times, I am frankly discouraged because some of these talks, the, the talk with Darren about the farm killings in South Africa was um, definitely the most listened to, most watched real history episode that I've done so far. The episode yeah. with Petrus also had many views, many listeners, and yet I, I've begged people to support this and that helped to bring it up a little over say a third of the way up the goal which is again so modest it's uh, i don't know what is it 7500 8000 us and he's barely eking that in and i think to myself well if all of the people who listened or watched these popular episodes just donated the cup of co cost of a cup of coffee, which is what now about five bucks universally averaging it out. He yeah. would be at his goal. And he would already be there. I know, and that is that is the sad thing, you know. Um, when he went on, not this latest walk, the one before, I tried to get sponsorship. Um, for five pairs of walking shoes. I approached all of the um, the well-known franchises and brands here. Not one would give us five pairs of walking shoes. Mm. So Pietrus and his team walked in the shoes that they had. Their feet were raw and bleeding swollen after the first day and they carried on walking I went to like big big shopping um, where we do our grocery shopping you know fruit and veg and you know all the big brands here 
and asked them for sponsorship or a donation and nothing. Not a thing. And especially like the fruit and veg places, places that I know are dealing with farmers. I'm like, do you realize that without the farmers, what are you going to do? You're not going to have food to sell. You know, so this is a very worthy cause. Now, we would ask the people, okay, even if each person gives 10 rand, that will help. Mm -hmm. I mean, 10 rand. I mean, what's the exchange rate now? I think it's about 18, 18 to 1. I can't spare 10 rand. And what Pietras and his team went through, I used to sit on the phone with them at, well, <laughs> most of the time, but yeah, at night, um, and trying to find, you know, like remedies, something cheap, you know, or something, you know, ice and, and then warm water, then ice and keep your feet up. And it was, it was, it was heartbreaking. You see, what, they walk. yeah, what Petrus is doing and the team that walk with him. I mean, that this isn't the only thing they're doing, and you can get into some of that. But they are walking, and they have a, a big white cross that's nearly as tall as Petrus yeah. that he carries. Stop farm murders. And they meet people, and, and it's a, a presence out there. So they're bringing attention to a problem, and they are... They meet with people black and white and all along the way. But here you have a black man who is drawing an attention and saying, this is a problem that supersedes race. This is a problem where our farmers are under attack. And, and this is food security. This is humanity. And so he's bringing attention to it in that way. That's a huge part of what he's doing. But he's also launched a suit against the ANC and I also wanted to hear about things that he has planned that he would like to do so that people know where the cost of their cup of coffee that they might want to contribute to what you are helping him do. Well, um, he's just come back from the BRIC summit. I don't know if he filled you in on what happened there. No, he did not. That's that is Brazil, Russia, India, China. That's the BRIC summit. Yes, and that happened at um, Santon Convention Center, which is Joburg area. So they drove through there, um, and he was very open about it. Um, I made some posters for him. Although I was telling him he shouldn't be saying that he is going because the amount of death threats this man gets, if you had to go onto his TikTok and look at the death threats, people saying that I've got, I've got your necklace. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I've got your necklace for you. You know, and people asking each other, where's he stay? Where's he stay? We'll sort him out, you know. And the amount of death threats, it's like every time he walks, you know, um, he wants people to know where he's going next because it's to raise awareness. And I'm so scared that someone is going to kill him. So um, he was very open, um, telling everybody he's going to BRICS. You know, can people help sponsorship, you know, for petrol money, accommodation? And he's going to expose this government to everybody who is watching, which would more than likely be the whole world because of, you know, um, what could happen. And he was adamant that God will protect him, so I mustn't worry about it. You know, I must just do the posters. And he did um, lives saying, yeah, telling people that he was going. And he went. He's got some videos. They they got to the um, Santon Convention Center where they were very hastily met by a group of policemen who escorted escorted them away. But one also gave him a phone to speak to somebody. Now, with all the noise and everything going on, he doesn't know who he spoke to. For all we know, it could have been Becky Tsele. But telling him not to embarrass South Africa. And they moved them to, uh, like, we had like a picketing area where, you know, people were, you know, picketing for Russia, stop the war and this and that. They moved him there. The next day, he was confronted by another woman who was at the picketing area. Now, because they were speaking another language, I couldn't understand. But she was shouting at him and had it, you know, like right up in his face. And you could see, you know, he wasn't attacking her. She was attacking him verbally. And... The police came and removed him. Mm-hmm. He had to leave. And he's saying, because, you know, they, they filmed it, he's saying, but I didn't do anything. So it's like they intentionally put this person there to cause a problem so they'd have a reason to remove him. So, um, yeah. I saw the video. She was wearing a red T-shirt. I think she might have been a... I know. Girl. That's I what I thought. Might have been what? That's what I thought. We, uh, uh, she uh, was wearing uh, red. <laughs> what would have meant... She's probably an EFF ah, uh, member. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, well, well it, it looks like it. It's, yeah. Okay. That's what my thoughts were, but... Um, I couldn't say for sure, and I tried asking Beatrice what was she saying, you know, who was she, and he kind of just, you know, blew it off because he knows that I worry about him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, she more than likely was, and she was put there to cause the problem and to have him removed. So, yes. So, basically, with Beatrice, and he's been like this since, well, uh, more than longer than I've been with him. Um, but, like, you know, he'll phone you one day and say, okay, so today's Monday. On Thursday, we're walking. I'm like, okay, where? Where are we walking to? No, we're walking all nine provinces. I'm like, oh my word. <laughs> okay, now, now we gotta sit and try and, you know, get money in to get them shoes, to try, you know, sort out accommodation, you know, but he's, he's very spontaneous. Well, as he would, he would say, you know, he's, He's following orders that he's getting. Mm-hmm. You know, he's doing what God wants him to do. So what Pietrus will do in the future, <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, he's going to keep on fighting and I don't see him stopping. I don't see him ever giving up because we have been through lows and I've got family in East London still who own a restaurant and Pietrus and his family had no food after they'd done one of these walks at Christmas time. They had no food. And you think of everything that he has given for us. And he goes home to his family and he can't even feed them. I got my, I mean, it's family in East London that we kind of grew apart, you know, so I don't really know them that well. But I phoned them and I said, please, you know, can you, can you please sponsor his family a meal? So they did like takeaway boxes for him and his family and they kind of just got whatever. But he was so, so grateful. Mm. I mean, he took a photo even and showed me the the boxes. Wow, that's so So, so in that way, you know, he, like I said, he gives so much. And can I, can I, yeah. Um, can I add to what you're saying? Uh, something that's been bothering me, and I, I did mention mention it to you when I spoke to you earlier today. Um, I see the photographs of Pietrus at various events, and he has his immediate team with him. And mm-hmm. here and there, you'll see some farmers join him. But I get the impression that he is not. If I was Pietrus, and I was um, making this effort and I was walking through these areas and where are the people there in, you know, it's one thing receiving uh, a donation but it's quite another thing when someone comes and walks with you or makes an effort yeah. to meet you at a place. I'm seeing a lack of people um, at this bricks thing. Where were all the yeah. other people who are, who are, who live in that area 
you could have gone round. Yeah. They, they, mm-hmm. I just saw what looked like Petrus on a. He's he need the people need to wake up and they need to get involved. They don't have to sing and chant. They can just stand there and hold hands together in a make themselves more visible. If they had something to hold, just they don't have to speak. They can just literally just be there in presence. I think if I was a if I was in Pietrus's shoes, I would really, really appreciate the comrad the camaraderie. The yeah, you know, you know when someone's close with you, you feel that connection. You know, you can have someone in the room with you, just knowing that they're there. How much more so in 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 the case where Pietrus is putting himself on the line? Well, we I talked really about like that. To see yeah, more people. Where are you? Uh, come what, on. That, uh, do you remember? In your area. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember, Darren, the three of us, Petrus, you and I, talking last time about the armchair warriors? Exactly. It, you know, get in your car, go and find out where Petrus is and just hang around and maybe have a chat with him. Um, you know, there is something about people connecting with other people that's very, very powerful. Other people see yeah. it. You know, we mentioned it uh, this morning, Joanne. You know, I've never been mm-hmm. an activist in my life. I've never done this. I've never been involved. But now mm-hmm. that I've had the opportunity to meet Petrus in the flesh, the first time I met him, and then having these chats, even in that small way, a few more eyeballs in the world have got to know about what's happening. They know who Petrus is more so. It all adds up. It just every little person uh, makes a difference, and the momentum seems to be frustratingly slow now that I'm paying attention to it. Yeah, you know. And I don't know if you've seen on his website. I updated the walk that that he did, and every day I'd put the poster that I would send out on his WhatsApp groups because he does mm-hmm. have a following. Yes. On the on the cell phones and on the computers. Mm. Okay. But these people just do not appear. Like I would say, you know, okay, like I said, you know, against my better better judgment, this man's a walking target. I would say to them, okay, so tomorrow Petrus is leaving this city and he's walking to this city. If you drive past him, stop, say hello, or hoot, wave. You know, he's doing this for us, for everybody in this country. But Petrus is also saying, Petrus is also saying, help me help you. And now that you are activated in a sense, come and join in and help somebody else too. I can't do it all. He mm-hmm. can't do it all by himself. Yeah. Uh, he can't create visibility on his own. And how many, I, I, I get the sense that there's about three or four people that are consistently by his side. Yeah. How, how much more so if uh, wherever he went, there was there were 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people mm-hmm. um, yeah. coming and going. The You could raise the spirits of people a, a hell of a lot. Anyway, that's just something that I noticed. I actually showed... Uh, Pietrus's activities at BRICS to my father and his mm. very first words to me were where are all the burkis meaning where are all the where are all the farmers where where's the backup support for him you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that was his statement to me um, so 
Yeah, exactly. please, uh, to anyone listening, even if you have donated, hell, imagine if you were in Pietrus's shoes uh, and, and the shoes of his friends. Come along, uh, bring a flask of coffee with you, something to snack on, come and meet the people, and maybe walk five kilometers with Pietrus. Yeah. That's what that's what the the moral support and the moral encouragement, and um, it's just what people yeah. do, really do respond to. It's what we need. I I I think there's something else too that I want to add for people who are listening in other parts of the world. If you appreciate what he is doing, then. Take some of the footage that you find, whether it's something that you get on Petrus's website or if it is this talk that we do, and share it. Email it to somebody. Tweet it to someone. Send it on your whatever app that you use to communicating with people. Put it in your group and let people know what's going on. And I think that that would help. Also, um, to Joanne, if you can send me some photographs of his walk at Bricks, that would be helpful. And any other updates that you can send me that will help me visually illustrate this. But this is... This is something that matters to me because I think it's... I really believe that... I still have faith in humanity. I still believe yeah. that people can understand who their enemy is. They can be helped not to turn on each other, and they can be helped to know who to support and how to support them. And I, and I think that this is something very worthwhile that the two of you are doing because you're an enormous help. I mean, he described you as... You know, someone who basically just runs his life. (laughs) (laughs) If only it were that easy, you know. um, And to all the people who think that he's being controlled by a white person, um, definitely not. Definitely not. He does what Pietrus, once Pietrus decides what he wants to do, no matter what I tell him, he does what he has set out to do. You know, like, yeah, me telling him don't do this or, you know, um, on the walk, um, where I kept it, you know, that, that I was talking to you guys about, his blood pressure was so high. And I'm telling him, please, Petrus, just hang in that town for just a couple of days. Go and get yourself properly checked out, please. And he didn't. Mm. The next day he was walking to the next town. He is so selfless. Um, so there's no controlling him. No one is <laughs> controlling him. No human. Um, but he is, he is, he has expressed a lot of appreciation for you helping with emails and coordinate things. And, you know, I know you're not pulling the strings, the, the, the great puppet master, Joanne, but you are an, very helpful <laughs> to him and appreciated. And I'm happy yeah. to make, I'm happy to meet you and have this talk with you. Yeah, no, no, it's great to meet you as well. Um, 
you know, and I think, yeah, the more that, that people listen, people actually look and see, people will realize what, what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. I, um, it's, it's really, really sad. It's a beautiful country. Now, if you come here on holiday, oh my, not a good idea. Yeah. But one thing, you know, even though everybody looks at the black on white thing and farm attacks and, you know, it's, there was one that happened a little while ago where this elderly lady was beaten and traumatized and bound she managed to get free and snuck away she ran for three kilometers through the bush barefoot and a farm worker found her and he hid her there's an elderly gentleman as well and he hid her now for him to do that, he was putting his life in danger. Mm. So it's it's complicated. It's mm-hmm. not just black and white, you know, it's they're good people and they are bad people. And then there are people who are brainwashing other people. I thank you both for taking time to speak with me, and I think that, you know, I hope that we're able to do this again, and maybe we'll have all four of us on a call at one time. It'll all work out, but it, this, this is what is happening in South Africa. There's a very deep, long history. I think we just scratched the surface of it. But I, the point that I wanted to make clear is that, you know, longtime listeners to Alan Water are going to know that things are not as they are presented in the history books or in the mainstream media. But I think it's so important to know from people who live through events to get a different perspective than the one you will get that's authorized. So I thank you both for taking the time to be with me, and I hope that we're able to do this again in the not-too-distant future. That would be great. And we can update you on Pietrus's latest adventures. That's great. And Darren, thank you. You always have good input and make some really good points, and I thank you for taking the time to do this. And for everyone listening... I will be back again next week with another episode, and thank you so much. And and anyone who feels moved to support what Joanne and Petrus are trying to accomplish in South Africa, please visit the Backa Buddy site, and I will supply the link as well as links to Petrus's website. And I think we'll also include this time the WhatsApp information as well. So thank you all very much. Well, I've got something that the world didn't give me.